Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. Today I'd like to welcome Jigger Shah to the show. Jigger Shah is the president and co-founder of Generate Capital, the leading investment and operating platform for sustainable infrastructure. Jigger, how are you doing today? Fantastic. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining, Jigger. Jigger, I'd like to start the show off with something interesting about you that most people wouldn't know. Well, I rode horses in college for the equestrian team. So that might be something that people don't know. That is interesting. So is it like polo or can no. you expand on that? It was, it was, uh, I rode, uh, you know, Western and I wasn't good at it, but uh, I found it really fun. So I did, did a lot of it when I was in college. That's really interesting. And one thing I'd like to sneak in here, and I hope you uh, don't mind. Um, would you mind sharing the serenity prayer with us? Oh, gosh. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Let me make sure I get it right. All right. Uh, Hold on. It's, you know, God grant us the serenity of mind to accept that which we cannot be changed, courage to change that which can be changed, and wisdom to know the one from the other. I think you hit it spot on, and I really appreciate you doing that. So Jigger, can you tell me a little bit about your current organization? Sure. It's, uh, you know, Generate Capital. It was co-founded with uh, my co-founder, Scott Jacobs and uh, Matan Friedman. And, uh, you know, the underlying premise was that the modern project finance infrastructure that got built around the solar industry was never translated into the other 75 sectors that are identified in the you know, climate change reports from McKinsey and the International Energy Agency. And so mm-hmm. we thought there needed to be a dedicated group of people whose job it was to figure out how to not only fund these assets, but of course, operate them over the next 20 years. Got you. And how long has um, Generate been around? Uh, we have been around for five years mm-hmm. and uh, have grown to over 60 people. That's quite a large firm. Yeah, so Jigger, you. You've you've been a player in the space for a long time. I, I believe you started your f- company in two thousand three. Is that correct? Yeah, I joined uh, you know Astro Power in nineteen ninety five uh, as an intern, and then uh, mm-hmm. was at BP Solar in ninety nine, mm-hmm. and then um, started Sun Edison in two thousand three. And can you share with the audience um, a little bit of history about Sun Edison and why you started it? Yeah, it was a pretty simple concept. Um, you know, when I was at BP Solar, what I realized was you had all these long-term incentives, uh, whether it's feed-in tariffs in Germany or whether it's uh, solar renewable energy credits in New Jersey, and customers just weren't willing to wait for a payback, right? They really wanted uh, to, you know, sort of get out of the power business and really just be in the buying electricity business. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And uh, and so figuring out how to sell solar as a service um, was, you know, something that we had really thought through and figured out. And so I think the contract that we created back then in 2003 is really the foundation for almost all solar as a service or as a service contracts in the, that are around today. And so could you expand a little bit exactly what that service was? Well, so we'd go to... Uh, commercial industrial customers like Walmart or Costco or Whole Foods or Staples and say, you know, instead of actually paying cash for a solar system, figuring out how to use the tax credits and the depreciation and all the other complexity, 
you know, we'll own it for you. You pay us just like you pay your electric utility company every month for the power that gets generated and fed into your store. Uh, and then we take those cash flow streams and take it to an investor, in our case, Goldman Sachs originally, and then Wells Fargo Bank uh, in the future, and um, and got them to give us the money up front to finance the project, and we made a margin in between. Sounds like a simple idea, yet very effective. Yeah, it's uh, as we like to say, it's simple, not easy. I totally, totally agree with that. In your book, you mentioned you know several trillion. I think you mentioned three trillion, if not, and ten trillion. Where do you think we are on that cycle right now? Well, those numbers refer to the amount of money that we need to really get to decarbonization. And mm-hmm. I mean, what I'd say is, I mean, solar alone has attracted over a trillion dollars of capital using the model that Sun Edison popularized in '03, and and I think wind has sort of you know hit that same threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, energy efficiency clearly has reached that threshold. And, and I think there are other places, whether it's electric vehicles or anaerobic digesters or, you know, reforestation of trees or uh, industrial heat or, um, you know, other processes that I think we're now needing to, you know, really decarbonize. And so I think the annual number that we hear quoted around from Bloomberg New Energy Finance is somewhere in the neighborhood of around you know, three, four hundred billion dollars a year. And that number needs to be roughly a trillion. Um, So we're, you know, 40 percent of the way. And so one of the things we've experienced here at Nexus PMG is that, you know, the education piece when we're speaking to um, especially investment community here in Dallas or family offices is is a huge part of it. How, How are you overcoming some of those hurdles from the education piece? Invest, you know, speaking to the broader community, kind of telling them that you can get similar, if not better returns, you know, and, and do good for the planet? Well, you know, I learned a long time ago that this stuff is never a straightforward answer to that kind of question. It's really mm-hmm. a top-down, bottom-up answer, right? So on the one hand, you need to get the advisors that, that, that these people trust, like Nexus, to, you know, to learn all the particulars and to educate their clients on this. And then separately, you need people like Generate Capital that have generated far higher returns in the infrastructure space than any of our peers over the last five years to make other people jealous. And, (laughs) you know, I think it's both, right? Like, it's hard to say, well, I'm just going to educate you to do the right thing because, you know, there's a lot of people who love real estate and they're just going to keep investing in real estate, even if the macro uh, numbers show that it doesn't make any sense. That's what they know. Same thing's true with people who do oil and gas, right? There's a lot of people who are going to invest in oil and gas, even if the way in which the um, you know the return on equity has been in the public markets has been quite weak in the last ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, but but at the end of the day, there's always someone who thinks that they can beat the market because their particular expertise is in that sector, right? So turn up the FOMO. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's one of those things where I've never found it to be hard to raise capital. It's not easy, but it's not it's not really impossible, right? There's really money available for good ideas. The question is really more about de- uh, developments and assets, right? So, like, if we wanted to go from $400 billion a year to a trillion dollars a year, there really aren't a trillion dollars worth of projects worth financing today. But there is a trillion dollars available to finance projects today. You know, we were at the um, e-capital event here in April, and that's exactly what we heard, is that there's a 
about a trillion dollars of dry powder sitting on the sidelines looking for projects. So I, I think you're, you know, you're spot on there. Yeah, so that's that's a lot of what we do at Generate is through the investments that we make in the other 75 sectors, um, we're trying to teach entrepreneurs like here's the checklist of things you should be checking for to make a f- project financeable, right? And we feel like the more entrepreneurs have those checklists, the less of the development cycles and development dollars are wasted. And then once you find those entrepreneurs or projects that are succeeding, do you have a way to broadcast those opportunities that have, you know, succeeded? Well, I mean, you know, obviously I have a podcast that I do called the Energy Gang Podcast. Which which I absolutely love and Stephen and Catherine are phenomenal too. Yeah. So we certainly talk about the sectors that Generate's been successful in there every once in a while. Um, I also write pretty extensively on LinkedIn and other platforms, uh, which, you know, get thousands of views, which is great. And so I do think that the information is getting out there. I think the real question is around whether um, the developers are really choosing to move to those sectors that have uh, greener pastures, right? It's very clear to me that the solar space today has less money to be made in it than some of these other sectors for the very smartest and brightest developers, what are some of those sectors that you think are attracting you right now? Well, we've certainly taken a fairly large position in anaerobic digesters, whether it's for cow manure, whether it's for food waste. We've certainly taken a position on fuel cells for transportation, you know, particularly plug powers, forklifts. Um, we've taken positions in electric vehicles for um, uh, fleets, whether it's BYD buses or, you know, others. Um, and so we've gotten you know, fairly good positions. We're also really big into hydrogen infrastructure. We think hydrogen is probably the magic sort of seasonal storage fuel that's going to allow for much higher penetration of wind and solar um, mm-hmm. in a you know transmission constrained world. So there's certainly a lot of different areas, but ultimately we're a slave to the deal flow we see, right? So we can do lots of theoretical analyses on a desktop study, but ultimately, if a real project with real contracts doesn't show up, then I can't really invest in it. Totally agree. So let's rewind the clock. And what I like to really ask is, you know, along the veins of um, Simon Sinek, the why, you know, what drove you to, you know, get interested and stay with this, you know, sector for all these years? Well, it's been different things over the years, right? I mean, when I was in high school, what drove me was it just fascinated me from a science perspective, right? I was one of those people who read popular science and particularly the what's new section in the beginning. And, um, you know, solar was truly unique, right? I mean, nuclear is amazing in my mind, but with nuclear, you're still doing the same thing. You're boiling water, spinning turbines and making electricity. Whereas with solar, you were truly making electricity for in a new way for the first time in 200 plus years. And, Mm -hmm. uh, And that was extraordinary. And so, you know, that fascinated me. And I decided to work in that field. I think when I joined BP, you know, Lord John Brown had uh, announced that climate change was real and that we needed to do something about it. So I educated myself about climate change. And that became, you know, quite fascinating and, you know, something that really inspired me to learn more about what the solutions were. Um, When I started Sun Edison, you know, like the problem of really convincing the money folks that solar was ready for institutional capital was extraordinary, right? I mean, like here was an entire group of people who want to invest in things that make good returns, 
but had really never recognized that solar was a mature technology that had been roughly the same package, right? Physical package since the early 90s. And so Mm -hmm. there was a lot of test data to show that it actually worked in the field and wasn't going to degrade early. Um, But they hadn't really spent the time figuring it out, right? So writing the white papers and figuring out whether it was financeable was a real challenge that, you know, like that it makes you feel good when, you know, you're able to convince this storied, you know, financial sector to, you know, to take a chance on, you know, solar. And then, you know, after that, I joined Richard Branson to, you know, to start the Carbon War Room. And and that was just another big effort around messaging, right? And I think the messaging before the Carbon War Room was, you know, it's shared sacrifice. It's only like a Starbucks coffee per month for everyone to sacrifice to be able to solve (laughs) climate change. And, you know, we were able to really single-handedly successfully change the global narrative into this, this was the world's largest wealth creation opportunity, and we got 26 heads of state to say it in Paris. And can you share a little bit more about the Carbon War Room? Yeah, I think it was Richard Branson's vision that change makers and entrepreneurs are the people who really make things happen, right? Not the large corporates. And, mm-hmm. you know, for a long time, there was this focus on large corporates, right? And so, you know, the Carbon War Room was really focused on who are the change makers. And what is really holding them back from success, right? I mean, clearly, you know, you could pass laws and mandates and that kind of stuff. But that was not our theory of change. We certainly had lots of other nonprofit partners who pursued that course of change. And so what we were really focused on was market-based failures, right? So things like transaction costs or um, information asymmetries or those kinds of things. And we were able to find a lot of them, like in the shipping industry, the airline fuel industry, the energy efficiency industry with tenant risks. Um, we were one of the first people to really promote, you know, pace financing. Um, you know, there were just a lot of these areas where we found that there were actually market risks and market mm-hmm. inefficiencies uh, that didn't really need government uh, involvement to solve the problem first, although you do need it eventually. But first, what we really needed was just to fix the marketplace. Can you expand on PACE financing? Well, so PACE financing stands for Property Assessed Clean Energy. And the goal of PACE financing was to recognize that property taxes have been used to finance improvements for decades, right? So people do property assessments to, you know, repair a blighted neighborhood and, you know, put in essential infrastructure. These are common things that happen. But if somebody wanted to improve their building infrastructure, mm-hmm. there was really no way to use property taxes as a way to do that. And so property assessed clean energy was the first way to do that. And that's a really an opt-in structure, right? The local town has to agree to, to you know, for you to self-assess yourself a property tax to pay back a loan to improve your building. Um, mm-hmm. And you can imagine that property tax payment is senior to the mortgage. So it's actually very low risk for an investor. Because uh, mm-hmm. if the you know building was to go into receivership, as long as you believe that the sale of the building would you know yield at least enough to pay off the property tax arrears, then right. you know you'd get paid back. So it was you know really an amazing you know structure in terms of lowering risk. You know, I I, I read your book and you know, you talk about pace financing and you, you kind of touched on the Starbucks. And I think you mentioned, you know, one of the fifth, the fifth pillar of uh, conservation. Is that correct? Yep. 
And, and, you know, I, I strongly agree with you regarding that. Um, you know, I, I have three young daughters and we're constantly walking around them, telling them, you know, turn the lights up, turn, stop the water, et cetera, trying to do a little bit of it. So totally agree. Um, highly, highly recommend to the audience to read your book. I think it's a phenomenal book um, from an education standpoint, also from a motivational standpoint. You know, there's so many pieces in there that I took away from you from a, from a personal standpoint that I thought, you know, if more people looked at it this way, you know, you kind of mentioned earlier about um, not being easy and not giving up. And I just find so much tenacity in what you wrote and what you've done. If there's a piece of advice you could share with the audience, what would it be? Well, I mean, you know, there's there's so much uh, that I've uh, learned over the years through scar tissue. But, I, you know, I think I would say the the biggest thing I would say today is make sure you align yourselves with the right people, right? It's amazing to me how many people settle for second best um, mm -hmm. in their partners. Um, and that really matters. I mean, when you're going through the trenches, taking on huge personal sacrifice in your family life and, you know, your finances and all those things to start something new in a company. Um, it's amazing to me how many people choose really weak partners. That, that, that's interesting. Uh, let me ask this then. How do you like, how do you align? How do you filter? How do you recognize whom you would believe to be a good partner? Well, I don't know that there's an answer to that question, but it certainly takes time, right? It's shocking to me how many people like pitch me an idea and, you know, the two people had just met like three weeks earlier, <laughs> right? And, you know, ultimately it takes time, right? There's a reason why people look at team risk and first time managers for funds and that kind of stuff, because you don't know whether people are going to get along, right? You don't know whether people actually have each other's back. You don't know whether you know, the other person is going to work just as hard as you're working um, for the same outcome and the same, you know, pay, right? And so you start to question, you know, whether you really want to work hard yourself if the other person's not going to work hard and you're sharing the economics of something, right? And right. it's amazing to me how, um, you know, how just, uh, um, you know, how people make these decisions without the level of seriousness that it really requires. So when these young teams or newly founded teams pitch you, and let's say, for example, they've only been together three to five weeks, are there any particular questions that you do present them with? Well, I mean, you know, it's hard to figure something out because I only have a half an hour or one hour with them, right? But pretty quickly in a, in a conversation, I can tell that one partner is weaker than the other partner, right? Mm -hmm. Or one partner is really, yeah, because ultimately when you're doing something that generates real value, like starting a company, you have to ultimately be able to make something happen that wouldn't happen otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. That's what That's creates right. value, right? Everyone can say that this technology saves you money. It's a three-year payback, yada, 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 right? But if you can't go to a customer and say, hey, customer, you know, this is a three-year payback. You really need to deploy it. And you can't get that signature on a contract. Well, then that person wasn't able to make something happen. Right. Right. It's all well and good to have a Salesforce platform and you have 10,000 entries in the Salesforce and they're very good at filling it out and they're very good at emailing people through Salesforce and they use the tools and all that stuff. And I'm a huge fan of productivity enhancement tools, right? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's like how many people sign the contract? Right. 
right? And then at the same time, the other partner is the person who executes, right? So now that you sign the contract, right, did it actually work? Did the customer have a good experience? Are they actually mm-hmm. happy? Are they happy to give you a referral, right? These are pretty basic things. But ultimately, if like you're the person who signs, gets a contract signed and you can't rely on your partner to deliver the services to the customer, well, you know, that partnership's not going to last very long and vice versa. If you're one of the world's best operators, but your business development partner can't, you know, close a deal, you're like, well, I, I got, you know, I got in with the B team. Right. You know, one of the other things I took away from your book, and I, again, I agree with this is, um, you know, some of the organizations that you kind of mentioned, I think you said, if we can't save, you know, a great percentage, then we won't try at all. I think I think a lot of people fall into that camp or that that you know if I can't affect a large group of individuals then you know we shouldn't try it all. I'm a big believer in the starfish story. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Um want to hear more of your views on regarding that. Well, and so, you know, one of my um, you know, good friends Michael Liebrick has been, you know, quoted in several of these uh, articles recently and one of the quotes that he said was you know, getting from zero to 1% basically takes forever, Mm -hmm. right? And getting from one to 5% market share, you know, takes some time, but a short time, right? But getting from 5% market share to 50% market share happens in an instant, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's true, right? I don't know that I would actually like necessarily regard the starfish story. I sometimes find that story, you know, annoying myself, but, um, <laughs> you know, but I, but I do think that, you know, there's a lot of people who put pressure on us entrepreneurs to say, well, if your technology can't get to a hundred percent market share, then you're a failure because that's really mm-hmm. what we're basing it on, right? Whether it's Jeff Bezos or, you know, Bill Gates or whatever else, like if your technology is not a household name that's on everybody's desktop, then, you know, you're a failure. Um, but I think for the vast majority of us, getting from zero to one percent market share is a Herculean feat. Yes. Right. And then getting from one to five is an even more difficult feat. Right. But it requires a tremendous amount of. Uh, it requires, sorry, a different set of skills. Right. The people that mm-hmm. go from zero to one percent are generally real change makers. The people who go from one to five percent are more institutionalists. Right. They like if you look in the solar industry, the people that went from zero to one, you know, were pretty like sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, busy entrepreneurs that were busy breaking norms and busy breaking things. Right. The folks who went from one to five percent were generally best friends of the electric utility industry. And they their their special sauce was being able to get interconnection agreements faster than the next guy or amendments to contracts that, you know, were necessary for financing or, you know, they knew how to get along, right, with all the different parties um, to be able to help meet the renewable portfolio standards. Right. Right. Which I think is great. I mean, I I don't begrudge them at all, but I'm just saying they're different personality profiles, right? And then now the people that are going from five to 50, you might actually be the utilities themselves. Right. So getting it initially moving. Yeah, I think that that's, that's where the real metal comes in. And that's where Generate, I think, likes to play its most essential role is figuring out how to get from zero to 1% market share. Because that's where nobody believes you. Nobody wants to be first to finance. The checklists are not yet established. You know, people mm-hmm. don't know how they're going to lose money. 
et cetera, right? <laughs> so going back to generate, and you mentioned several technologies. Do you have a personal favorite, not from a um, return on investment standpoint, but one that you think you know is just absolutely phenomenal? Well, I don't know that I I have a personal favorite by personality, right? Like by personality type, my personal favorite is the entrepreneur themselves, right? I am fascinated by what caused that person who's pitching me to leave everything behind and start a company in this area. Mm -hmm. And I want to do anything I can to support that person because I used to be that person. And I would have hoped that the people that supported me, you know, had the same level of gusto in supporting my passions, right? So that's what really motivates me on a daily basis. But to answer your question, I mean, I am extraordinarily fascinated by hydrogen. Um, Okay. Not because I think hydrogen itself is some sort of clean energy technology, but because I do think it's a very efficient energy carrier. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a glue that meet that, that, that binds a lot of stuff together. And, you know, and so that part I think fascinates me, right? Because if you have a bunch of hydrogen, you can do a lot mm-hmm. of stuff with it, right? You can right. make fertilizer, you can make methane, you can burn it directly. You can put it in a fuel cell. Like there's lots of things that you can do with it. Um, mm-hmm. And so it becomes this really versatile way to store energy, far more versatile, I think, than you know storing electricity for a few days at a time. So I know California is investing in some hydrogen infrastructure, but I don't know if any other states are following suit. Do you know of any? No, not really. I mean, I think there's certainly lots of existing hydrogen out there, right? So hydrogen, you know, there's about a hundred and. 15,000 kilograms a day of hydrogen that is consumed by people around the country just for industrial purposes uh, that are shipped around the country, right? So this is not counting the hydrogen that's produced at refineries for hydrocracking or that kind of stuff. But Mm -hmm. this is for people who actually order a tube of hydrogen and have it shipped to their lab, Um, right? And so those people clearly have already chosen to buy hydrogen for whatever application they're using it for. Plug Power is one of them to power all their fuel cell forklifts at Walmart and Amazon mm-hmm. distribution centers. Um, mm-hmm. So to me, like that is the market for hydrogen today. And that market, I think, could expand greatly if you actually had more affordable you know, hydrogen solutions, which are increasingly coming because you, know, you have a lot of solar and wind power that's being curtailed right now. And that curtailed power is basically, you know, in some ways, worth a negative price. Right. Well, Jigger, this has been fantastic, and I really appreciate your time today. And I will put links to your show and your book and your company website on the podcast. Is there any last messages you have? Well, you know, I think that the, that we, we're going to p- figure out a way to get this done, right? I think human beings have uh, a long history of, you know, getting things wrong and and moving slowly and, you know, doing things all the wrong ways, right? Sort of like that Winston Churchill quote that America can be, you know, counted on to do the right thing after it's exhausted all other options. Um, So I do think we're going to get this done. I know that, you know, folks are feeling quite dismayed and distressed right now, but I do think we're going to get it done. And I do continue to believe this is going to be the largest sort of, you know, wealth creation opportunity of our time. Well, I look forward to being shoulder to shoulder with you trying to get it done. And again, thank you so much for being on the show and look forward to catching up with you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Jigger. Thanks. Thanks.